First Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. Hear God's word. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And this is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, this morning we pray that you would come to us and be a good, good father. Help us see clearly what your word is trying to say so that we may have clarity as to, like, live walking away from here this morning. And whatever would keep us from being present here and now, whether happenings from this past week or what's ahead of us the week to come, whether it's even last night and the the guilt maybe of whatever it may be that's kind of weighing on us, whatever it may be, because we've had our confession and assurance, I pray that we can now just kind of relax and take it easy and just be here and receive and let your Holy Spirit come and do a work in our lives, and that we would leave here this morning so convicted, so compelled, so convinced by your word and by your spirit that we walk out of here conformed more to your image, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, um, I'm starting to learn that Charlotte's birthday is both a really exciting time, Charlotte's my daughter, a really exciting time, but also a really scary time because I never know what kind of gifts she's going to get. And they're going to either, like, they're either going to take up a lot of room or they're going to be little jagged pieces that can really hurt you if you step on them, right? And so um, I remember Suzanne's father decided he always gives these gifts that I don't necessarily uh, want her to have because it's going to be a lot of work for me to keep up with and avoid. Uh, Like Charlotte's like, let's play with this. No, let's not play with that because that's going to, like, take up too much space, too much time. Let's play with this over here instead. Like, but you can't convince a three-year-old. Like, they're like, no, I want that one. And so this past, like, March, he gave her a, a little dollhouse that opens up and has, like, lots of little bitty pieces, like a bed and a dresser and a sink and a toilet and all these kind of things. And it seems innocent, but the problem is, like, Charlotte doesn't want to, like, just put them all in the place and keep them nice and neat. She wants to throw them everywhere and then leave them there. And then there are times I come into a room and I step on these little pieces and I say things to the heavens that may or may not be like 
like approvable in CCK. But like I say things and I'm like, oh, I can't say that. Okay. And they're like, okay, let's pick these pieces up and let's put it all back together. And, and so like this is what we do regularly. She loves to play with this dollhouse. This is like her jam. And I can like bank on it at least twice a week. I mean, she loves pulling it out, getting thing everywhere, everything everywhere. And so, and I was thinking about it like, you know, playing house is much easier though because I can like take a bed and move it up to the third floor if I want to, just in the palm of my hand. It's so easy. Like, this is how we should design our house. Everything's just super easy to pick up and move around as you want. And like, but you can't pick up a, like, I don't want the toilet in here. I want it in here. Like, you can't do that in real life. So like, we're playing house, but like, to actually do house is much different. You get what I'm saying? Like, you can't just decide one day, like, now some of you think you can, and you exasperate your spouse. Like, you're like, I want to change up the living room to this right here today. And everybody's like, oh, God, not again. Anybody like that in here? Like, you just love rearranging? Okay, that's sad. Don't do that. That's mean. That's a lot of work. So, like, the thing is, it's much easier to play house than to do house. You see what I'm saying? I think church is similar that it's much easier to like play church than to actually do church. Like a lot of us can tend to want to, me included, just want to play church. Like we want to show up on a Sunday, we sing a few songs, hopefully a couple of hymns in there, we hear a sermon, we go home. But then to actually like do church together is a much different challenge. And it's something that honest, if we're honest with each other and with ourselves, like we avoid a lot of times, that we want to stay on the outskirts. And yet to the Bible and to the writers in Scripture, church is a really big deal. And matter of fact, to the writer of this, of this epistle here, we have, we have Peter. And Peter has a very different um, calculated view of church that others wouldn't have had. You see, it all started for Peter about 20, 30 years, even before he wrote this letter to the church. It started when he and other disciples were following Jesus up and down Palestine, Palestine, Israel. And there's this moment where they're following Jesus and they get to this northern town called Caesarea Philippi. It would have been um, occupied by the Romans. It would have been very much mainstream for Roman culture. It would have lost a lot of its Jewish heritage and roots. And in Matthew 16, we find that Jesus is walking with his disciples in this area of Caesarea Philippi. And he says to them, and you can only imagine that he's stopping at a particular place when he says this to them. You see, Caesarea Philippi was known for one thing in particular, not just that it was occupied by Romans and it was Roman culture, but also in this kind of dark corner of Caesarea Philippi where this water would come out from this particular cave was something called Pan's Cave, Pan's Labyrinth. You've heard of maybe something like this before. And Pan in the Greek lore was this like demon pied piper. Many considered him the devil himself. And that Pan lived in this cave and all the locals were spooked by it. And there was like stories that if you ever went into Pan's cave, you never came out. And so you can only imagine that Jesus is walking by this area of Pan's cave, Pan's labyrinth. And he says to his disciples, who are people saying that I am? 
And they're saying, well, some of them say that you're Elijah or Elisha. Like some of them are saying that you're a prophet. Who knows? But then Jesus turns to them and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up and he goes, you're the Christ, meaning you're the Messiah. You're the one that's going to bring political reform and complete shalom to these people, to this country. And Jesus stops on a dime and looks at Peter and says, like, you got it. You get this. And like, you can only imagine Peter's like, I got it. Like, y'all missed out. But like, I got this. Like, I understood it. But then Jesus doesn't let him kind of stay at that moment because, of course, Jesus, when he's bringing invitation, he's always bringing challenge. Isn't that true? Like, if you read Jesus, there's a constant invitation, but like two seconds later, there's a challenge. And he says to Peter, see, his name was Simon at the time, and he says, Simon, from here on out, your name will be Peter, and you are going to stand upon this rock. Now, you read it. In Matthew 16, 18, it can read kind of weird. He goes, from here now, your name will be Peter, and I will build my church upon this rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Like what he's saying to Peter is this, Simon, you now are going to be Little Rock. Like, not Arkansas, but like, like Small Rock. Like you now are going to be a small rock. And I am going to build you as a small rock upon a big rock. That's me. And I'm going to build you up, all these little small rocks on this big rock, and this will be my church. And the gates of hell, even Pan's labyrinth, Pan's cave, will not prevail against you. Like it's a very compelling vision that Jesus gives to Peter. He renames him. He says, you're meant to be a stone, a stone that's laid, and more stones are laid upon this foundation of a big rock. And the more that it's laid, it's going to build up, and this is going to be my church. And when the church is built up, and the church means called out ones, so when those who are called out of darkness come into light and they're built up together, something amazing, magical is going to happen where not even the gates of hell will prevail against you. Matter of fact, what he's saying, you'll be able to charge into that cave, Peter, and like change things. And Peter's hearing this, and he's going, Wow. Like, that's amazing. That's way different from what I thought church was. Like, I thought church was just like showing up to synagogue and like us having some hymns and and whatnot and, and Jesus saying, no, no, no. Church, the called out ones, that's what it means, is about you all together working in a way and building upon me where you can change life around you for the better and you can like, you can destroy the darkness. And this morning, we come to near the end, we have one more week, but near the end of our series called We Believe, which is we are looking at the foundational pieces that make us the church today, like who we are as people who follow Jesus, and what does it mean for us now to live in this world. And we're not not trying to find little preferences or little doctrines, that's not the core of us as a church. The core of us as a church is this Apostles' Creed. Something that the earliest followers of Jesus came together and said, these are the core tenets. These are the essentials of what does it mean now to follow Jesus. And this morning, we come now to, in this Apostles' Creed, to this line, this section that says, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins. And I want us to talk about these three areas, but I want us to talk about it in these ways. 
that first, we are set apart as one, two, we are animated together, and three, we are accessible to all. So let's talk about this piece by piece and see if we can come even to the same place, the same invitation and challenge that even Peter received, standing in that basin, looking into that cave with Jesus beside him. So let's start with this, that we are as a church, that we are set apart as one. The line is Holy Catholic Church. So let's break that down. Holy Catholic Church. First, this idea of holy. The word holy here, when we're looking at 1 Peter, is two things. One, we are holy, meaning that we are, we are chosen and we are called. We are chosen and we are called. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Chosen and precious. You are chosen by God. If you're here this morning, you are on a journey of having your eyes open more and more to the Lordship of Jesus. Now, whether you call Jesus your Lord this morning and say everything is going to center around Him, or whether you're here this morning saying, I'm interested in this, either way, you didn't have enough sense in your own strength to go, I think I'm going to give Jesus a shot. We are told in Ephesians 2 that all of us as human beings were dead in our trespasses. Now dead, you know what dead means in the Greek? Dead. That's what it means in the Greek. It means like a dead person can't do anything about their situation. Like they're in the grave. Nothing about them can like find life. So what it means though is that you, if you're here this morning, there's something that's like hurt your heart and mind to go, I think I just want to like consider Jesus, whether you realize it or not, whether you're calling Jesus your Lord or not. And that means he has chosen to open your eyes. That doesn't mean though that you're some kind of special club, that you're better than others. I'll give you an example. I grew up in Northeast Mississippi and um, like I played baseball. Now you got to understand like Iranians aren't known for playing baseball, but I didn't know any better because I was with a bunch of white people in Mississippi, and so I just played baseball. And so I'm out there running around as a kid, really not knowing what I'm doing, and not really thinking I'm that good at anything. I'm just kind of going for it. And I remember they had different age groups, like they have 9 and 10-year-olds and 11 and 12-year-olds, so on and so forth. And I was okay. I mean, I was just kind of the crazy kid running around and doing the best I could. But I remember going into 11 and 12, like coaches would get together and they would kind of pick their teams. They would have basically like a lottery draft. It was like fantasy baseball for like 11-year-olds. I don't know if that's like ethical or not, but like that's what they did. And, you know, so like I ended up on, I got a call, hey, Robin, you're on this team, show up for practice and uh, at this date. And I'm like, okay. So I show up to practice. I'm just having fun. I don't really know what I'm doing. And I remember this coach pulled me aside, Billy Dykes. And Billy, that's a good Mississippi name right there, Billy Dykes. And Billy pulls me aside, and he's like, hey, I want you to know something. I chose you to be on this team. I'm like, why? Like, did you not see me play last year? Like, this didn't go very well. Why are you choosing me to be on your team? But something in my mind clicked at that moment. 
Like, I thought I was just some obscure kid running around the field looking crazy. He sees, like, hey, like, there's something there to work with. So, like, I'm choosing you. Like, I'm calling you to come be a part of this baseball team. And it was incredible. Something in me clicked, and I was like, hey, maybe I'm not bad at this. And then after that, I started making all-star teams and all these kind of things because somebody said to me, I choose you. Now, there's something about, notice here, he's saying in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen. At the very base of our commonality in this room, we can all come around the fact that we feel rejected in the world. And I don't mean like the world's plotting against you and saying, oh, I want to really reject you and make you feel horrible. It's just life. Like, you just deal with, like, rejection in life. You can't get around it. It's a part of what we deal with on a regular basis. And there's something amazing to the gospel that God comes to you and says, hey, I know you're dealing with this in life. I want you to know, like, I love you. I choose you. Come on in. And at that moment, it's not your job or my job to go, well, you got to choose everybody else. And God's like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to that. Don't worry about that. But child, can you receive the fact that I just want you? Like, can you and I do this together? And all of a sudden, you get a bunch of people who find themselves like, oh, you too, oh, you too, oh, you too. You get all these like called ones, all these ones who are like chosen to be brought together. And all of a sudden, now you're finding there's a commonality that's not like elitism, but you're just going, I know what it's like to not belong somewhere, and all of a sudden I'm told I belong. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Look at verse 9. He builds on this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. See, there's a list here that goes with that. See, not only are you chosen, he says you're chosen and it means you're not better than others, but now you're also like royalty. Like, you really, 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 really are important. Like, you're a big deal. You may not realize it or not. Like, you're not God, you're not big, but like, you're a big deal. Like, you're royalty. So, like, that means as royalty, like, you have access to, like, really important, cool things to the fact that you have a good, good father who wants to give you really good things in life. Like you no longer have to live under the mindset that he's out to get you, but he's actually for you. So that means no matter what you're going through, even if it's really hard or really troubling, you can actually go, I have a good father. Like he's chosen me and I'm royalty. It's amazing. And then he goes on to tell, tell us that you are a holy nation, that you now have a new ethnicity in a sense to come around, a new people group to relate to, that you no longer have to only identify yourselves as someone from a privileged or subjugated background, but you now can be a people who come together and say, you too, we're in it together. We have commonality here, common ground we stand on, that he's wanting to build something and do something. But here's the thing, here's where Israel lost the vision. You see, Israel was called out from slavery to be this chosen people, and we're told that it was for no other reason. In Deuteronomy 7, we're told it wasn't because you were the prettiest at the ball. It wasn't because you were the biggest or the largest. It was simply because I love you. I love you. 
Let me, let me say this on the side. If at any point in time you think because you're a Christian you're better than someone else who isn't, you don't get it. If you think that because you're a Christian, like you made a really good decision and like God is just going to high-five you for the rest of your life for doing that, you don't get it. That you are called out and Israel was called out as well. What happened with Israel though, they had a second half to this. They weren't just like called out of the darkness, they were now to proclaim the excellencies back out into the darkness of this great new nation. They were to be a lighthouse for the world to come to and say, I want that. But instead, what happened to Israel is they became the biggest xenophobic, racist group on the face of the earth that built walls for people to have to scale over to come be a part of what they were doing. And so that's the main impetus even of Jesus coming because God's always been after nations. He wants nations. He wants all types of people to come be a part of this church. And so there's a call. You see, and when we're calling people, we're saying, God, God like asked me to come be on his team. Do you want to come be on his team? And they're like, yeah, I didn't think I was any good at like baseball. You're like, oh, it'd be great. It'd be fine. I really suck. Come on, let's come play ball together. Like it's going, hey, like I know you didn't like grow up with stuff. Like I know you had like a bunch of poverty, but like there's like royal stuff in here, like amazing cupcakes. Like you want to come in? Like you want some of this? Like it's pretty great. Like, hey, like you, you didn't think you belonged somewhere like as a nation. Like where, where, where do you land in life? Do you want to be a part of like what's happening here? You see, that's the second half. Not only are we chosen, but we are now called at the end there, verse 9, to proclaim the excellencies of him, and that we now are these living stones being built up. Go back and look at verse 4 for a second. He's saying that you are living stones being built into a spiritual house, and every Jewish person who is now following Jesus or any person who is familiar with Jewish history would have lost their minds here because it would have told them something astounding. This is talking about a temple. This is talking about like this place in the Old Testament that Jewish people held really high. You see, temple in the Old Testament was the, was the place where you could guarantee meeting God every time you went. It was where heaven came crashing into earth. And if you ever felt like that you were dead or you had no direction in life or you just lost simply meaning for who you were, you could go to temple and find life and orientation and meaning. Temple was amazing. It was built by these stones, humans that built these stones, but yet God's presence came in. And Peter's saying everything has been flipped on its head. No longer do you need a building to go to because when all of you come together, this is where God is. And so now people can come in contact with a sense of having a new place to belong, of having a sense of like they matter, they're royalty. And it's you as living stones, and somehow when living stones come together and make this spiritual house, change happens. C.S. Lewis, talking about this, he goes, men are mirrors or carriers of Christ to others. Usually it is those who know him that bring him to others. That is why the church, the whole body of Christians, showing him to one another is so important. It is so easy to think that the church has a lot of different objectives, education, building, missions, holding services. But listen, 
The church exists for no other purpose but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ or little stones. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. Your Bible is a waste of time unless you're actually living this out. All these messages you come to hear, unless you actually go out and live it, it's just going to be a waste of time for you. Unless the seed takes root and grows, it dies in the ground and grows, it cannot produce fruit for others to partake of. And we all together, somehow, when we are bringing our living stone to the table and it's building upon each other, it creates a spiritual house. And we start reflecting Jesus to one another. We start encouraging one another to want to go after him. And that pushes us towards being more Christ-like. I know this is so simple for many of us, and yet this is what the Bible's about. I'm sorry, you wanted maybe something more complicated. This is it. And yet, if you are actually willing to do the simple thing, you'll find it's the hardest thing you've ever encountered. To actually say we're going to come together and be Christ to one another and build upon each other, not tearing each other down, actually in turn now is going to tell a message to the world that they say, I either want to be a part of it or I want to get away from it. And here's the sad reality. So many what? Want to get away from it. See, the message of Jesus is beautiful enough. It's just the message of our lives that isn't. I'll say it again. The message of Jesus is beautiful enough. It's just the message of our lives that isn't. And the question is, are we going to be willing to actually say that we want to be built together into something where others can come partake of and actually find now a new place to belong? So there's this part where we are holy but also Catholic. And it's big C, Catholic, in that it's universal. Look back at 1 Peter 1. This is how Peter starts off his book in verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All these churches scattered throughout, and Paul's writing a letter to, I mean, Peter's writing a letter to them. And he's saying to them, this is for you all together. You don't need to be scared of the word Catholic here. The word Catholic simply means universal. That's what it means. But let me just address something about even having fear in the first place of that. So many times as Protestants, many of us in this room, evangelicals, we're always believing we're finding like the better understanding of Scripture, that we have now the true way to land when it comes to seeing Jesus in all of his facets. And it creates a hierarchy. It creates an arrogance. Let me be really clear. You, if you're here this morning, this church is no better than the church down the street, across town, on the other side of the tracks. You're no better than big church in the corner, and you're no less either. You're no better than the church over here that may be more progressive or the church over here that's more conservative. You're not. And if we think that way, we don't get it. Because at the end of the day, if a people are proclaiming Jesus as Lord and bowing a knee to him and saying, by grace alone, I come to the Father, there's your church. So many times we get like, 
I got to find just the right church with all the right things. You're not going to find it. We aren't it. If you're looking for it, we're not it. But you're not going to find it anywhere else either. There's no such thing as the right place for you. It's just you making it the right place. Like wherever you are, be all there. That's the point. But so many times we get afraid. Like you have Catholic brothers and sisters, Catholic church brothers and sisters, yet you like hold them at arm's length. There's so many wonderful things to learn from the Catholic church. There's so many things to learn from the Episcopalian church or the Anglican church, the Presbyterian church, the Baptist church, whatever it may be. There's so many great things to learn. And if we ever just niche ourselves in, we're going to miss out on being something more attractive for the rest of the world. Time and again, I hear it from especially my family who are Muslim, when they ask questions about Christianity, the first thing they always point to is, why do you have so many like segregated ways to go about talking about Jesus? Why can't you guys just like be okay with each other? And it is like, good point. Like I don't really have a good answer except we're all trying to find this exact way to have to look at everything and get it all right. But that's like trying to chase like a leprechaun on a unicorn going over a rainbow. It's just not going to happen. So the question is, can you see that at the end of the day, it's Christ alone and we're all being built together into a holy place? So we are set apart as one. But we also, we also are animated together. We're animated together. Joni Erickson Tata said, believers are never told to be one. We are already one, and we are expected to act like it. We're expected to act like it. You are one, let's now act like it. And what does that mean for us to act like it now? The communion of saints. Here's what I want you to hear. Your communion with one another should reflect communion. Your communion with one another, your fellowship with one another should reflect the fellowship we have around this table. I don't know if you've picked up on it yet, but we kind of have something we call liturgy, like a rhythm, like the same way we go about service week in and week out. It's always three songs up front, confession assurance, a sermon, two songs on the back. It's pretty simple. If you haven't figured out the code yet, there it is. Now this code's intentional. We do it for a reason. We want to kind of warm up the diesel engine on a cold day. So we come in and we sing a few songs. We also want us to know that when we go into a sermon, that we never have to go into it with condemnation. But we now can be open to conviction. So we have a confession and assurance. And yet for many of us, at that moment, the sermon becomes the highlight. All right, preacher, give it to me good. I'm waiting. Like, you better make this so amazing, so outstanding. Churches, time and time again, are built around this. Our church has fallen fault to this many times. That you got to come and hear this impressive, amazing sermon. And yet, we just kind of gloss over the table. Let me say something. Anything anybody standing on the stage ever says pales light years in comparison to what this table provides. This table, week in and week out, these sacraments are the high watermark of your week, whether you realize it or not. 
Because this is a place week in and week out, depending how long the sermon goes, we can guarantee around 11.15 to 11.25 that you're going to bump into Jesus. So if you got anything troubling you, anything that's confounding you, anything that's discouraging you, you can come right here to this table and you can find like his presence. Now there are three traditional ways churches over the years have talked about communion. One is that when you come forward, you are literally like taking, ingesting the body and blood of Jesus. A second way is is that you're simply coming forward to remember what Jesus has done for you. Like this is a, almost like a gravesite, and you come and put flowers on it. There's a third way though, and this is the way that we practice things at Christ City, that there's something almost mystical, magical about this table. That somehow the presence of God is above it, below it, behind it, before it. That somehow, some way, that whenever we partake of this body and blood, this bread and juice, we are interacting with Jesus. Look on the screen here at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now read it, verse 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we are many, are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So two things here, participation, and then it says many and one. First, I want you to consider just how deep, off-putting this word participation is. Here, what it's saying is, it says, notice, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? And then it says, are we not participating together as a body of Christ? This word participation means fellowship, but it means more than just like high-fiving. It actually is this word like intercourse. I know we're getting weird. Just bear with me. Intercourse for humans is the deepest way that we can connect with one another. It's this place where you can be with a person in a way, bringing yourselves together that is mystical almost, definitely powerful. It can, it can build you up or destroy you, depending on how you approach it, in covenant, outside of covenant. A lot of you know this, whether from experience or those that have experienced it. That said, that when we come to this table, I don't mean to be sacrilegious, I'm just trying to give you what the Bible's saying. There's almost like some kind of like, it's almost like sex, but it's not. Hear me. But you are coming to such a powerful place here that the only way to describe it in human form would be intercourse. There's something powerful, a bonding happening at this table that either can build you up or tear you down. And it's saying as well that whenever we all partake of this table, that the same thing's happening with one another. It's crazy. But there's a participation in the body around this table that we are coming together and bonding in a way that even kind of goes beyond words. And he's saying that this is so vital and so important that if you want to actually come together and know Jesus, it has to be around this table. And the only thing to be able to relate it to in this world would be something like intercourse. It's crazy. The Bible's so strange. But it's telling us that there is this connection we have that even goes beyond words. So we have a participation together in this. And that that is like an animation. It brings life. 
But also it's saying that we are many and one, many and one, many and one. See, no matter your differences or preferences, no matter what side you stand on and vote, no matter what you're for or what you're against, this table guarantees you that although we are many, we become one. It's amazing. This is why it's so important for you before you come partake of communion to check yourself before you wreck yourself. This is why it's so important for you to actually check out what's going on in your heart. That if you have any conscious sin for how you see it, for you to actually give it before and to the Lord, to be able to even make amends with brothers and sisters around you. Because when you come forward in sin and partake of the table, you're defiling something. You're defiling like this intimacy, this bedroom of God. This place where although we are many, we become one. And so if you try to land on a preference when you come forward this morning, but if you, if you come take to the table, it doesn't matter what your preference is. All that matters is, is that you're all saying this table is where it all counts. And it's here at this table that the animation of the body comes like together. Like, you know, when you have a fire and you like move the embers away from each other, what happens to the embers? They die. They go out. Like if you want a fire, you put all the embers together. If you want a place for people to get warm in the midst of the cold, then you come together. But it only happens if the fire, if the embers are really lit. Like if they really have something going on inside of them. See, when we come together as a living house, participate with one another, we create this fire for the world to come around and to become warmed by. And that is bringing life, that is animation. But it happens through our participation. Now, let me have like a little bit of real talk before you, before we get to the last part of the message. When we talk about this idea of, of playing church or doing church, several months ago, back in the fall, there was a, a prayer time we had as a staff. And I'm, I'm, a lot of times I end up being kind of like the, the, the resident prophet Unless I'm hanging out with Jamin, then I can just be like, dude, you take that. But like, so I'm kind of like the resident prophet, and that means like, oh God, here goes Robin saying something that we don't want to hear. Like, that's kind of like, that's my role. I don't like it. It is what it is. So we were coming together and praying as a staff, and it just hit me. Like, you know, a lot of times at Christ City, we've talked about that if you're on the other side of the fence peeking over that we want you to be able to see something, like this idea, this metaphor of a fence. But it hit me that there are those who are on this side of the fence looking in and those who are on this side of the fence doing church. And then there are just lots and lots of people on the fence. You know what I mean when I say that? Like one foot in, one foot out. Like they're acting like it, but then they don't. And it just hit me. And I started praying it, and then our staff's like, well, I guess we got to start praying it now. And that was, God, I pray that whoever's on the fence, you would knock them over to one side or the other. And I just got this picture of God going one by one, knocking people over. Either let them be here or let them not. Let them be here or let them not. Now, as you all know, our church has been through quite a few things since the beginning of the year. One side or the other. One side or the other. As you know... It has revealed to us 
Like who really wants this church and then who just kind of wants to play church? I want you to hear me as gracefully as a prophet can say it. Like I really want you here. Like I really, really want you here. I promise you I won't give you a bunch of prophetic words if you stay here. I promise. I'll leave that for Jamin. But like if you're going to be here, be here. And if you're not going to be here, then let us know and we can help you find where else to be. It's okay. Like we want you here really, really bad. But like if you're not really sure, then it's okay. You can, you can be somewhere else because guess what? We're one. There's all kind of great churches out there. This is not the sermon I want to give you right now. I want you all to say like, we're here forever. We'll never leave you in your codependency, Robin. Like, I know you can't give me that. But what I am saying is, like, you've got to be honest with you. If you're here, like, like, let's be here. Let's not play. Let's actually do church. Let's actually be living stones that are built up. Let's be something in this area of Midtown. And if you're not, that's okay. But if you go somewhere else, be there. Because here's the thing, if you find yourself rotating churches every few months, every few years, it's not about the church, it's about you. Because there's no such thing as a perfect church. There may be a church that's more gauged to your life stage, I get that, but there's no such thing as a perfect church. Because when you go somewhere else, you're just going to find other things you didn't like there. Oh, they didn't believe in this, or oh, they didn't preach that, or oh, they didn't stand up for that. There's all kind of things. But will you stay here and make this into the church that you desire? Or are you simply going to wait for this church to become the thing that you desire? All right, that's the only hard word I got for you. Let me end on this. So, we believe the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Look back to verse 10. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's beautiful. Once you didn't have anywhere to belong to, but now you do. And once you could not find comfort, that's what mercy here means, comfort. But now you can find comfort. You see, forgiveness of sins is not simply saying that God's forgiving you for doing all these wrong things in life. For an ancient Near Eastern person growing up in the Middle East who was Jewish, they believed that sin was much, much more about like, I did a boo-boo and I need to like get this right now. They actually believed that sin was the very thing unraveling the fabric of this world that God had put together. Then in Genesis 1, God created and it was what? God created and it was what? Time and again, God created and it was good. He created and it was good. God put together a beautiful, good world, a platform for us to build upon and do much more amazing things in it. And yet sin comes through and takes that thread and starts pulling on it and unraveling. That's what sin is. Sin is taking this world apart. Forgiveness and grace is putting it back together. See, here's what sin is in your life. You've been taking your life apart. Every time you've committed an act outside of how God's designed you, you are unraveling your life one bit at a time. I don't have to preach on that for you to know it's true in your heart. Every time you commit, whether it's you have sex outside of marriage, or whether it's you're slandering someone or gossiping, 
or whether it's you're holding back and not being fully honest and lying, you know what's happening inside. You are unraveling more and more the original way God designed you. So that means grace is putting it all back together. Now here's the question. What does it mean when all these living stones come together who had those stories? It means that we are the place, the place where others who are unraveling their lives can come back in here and find it be put back together. And I know that sounds like a lot of pressure, but I'm not giving it to you, the Bible is. That somehow, some way, when you bring the worst of you to God, He brings out the best in you for others. And then in turn, when you start bringing out the, even like where you've been forgiven to others, it makes them want to come be a part and find the same thing. And we find that when we create that atmosphere, it's really beautiful, and I would even say safe. Like church needs to be a place where people can come into and say, oh, it's been a long week. I don't mean this building. I mean your lives. Because wherever you go, like there you are. Rachel Held Evans, in your bulletins, she said, imagine if every church became a place where everyone is safe, but no one is comfortable. Imagine if every church became a place where we told one another the truth, we might just create sanctuary, sanctuary, spiritual house, temple, living stones being put together. You're meant to be a place of respite, a place of restoration, a place where people to find life again. Because you're animated and you're together as one. You're living this out. You're called out and you're calling others into it. And it doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable, which means, yes, the person beside you votes differently. And yes, the person beside you has a different view when it comes to certain ethics in this world in many ways. And yet, we all come together around this table and we proclaim the excellencies of Christ who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So this morning, as you come to the table, as the band comes forward, this is what I pray for you. That somehow, some way, this is different for you. That it's not you, in a sense, thinking that Jesus has got to die all over again for you with his body and blood. And it's not that this is simply like a gravestone and you're coming and throwing flowers on it and telling them thank you. But that somehow, some way, there is like God's presence here with us. And that you can bring the worst of you to the best of Him and let that start putting your life back together again. And that you can consider what does it mean for you to start being more open and honest that once you were not a people, but now you are. Once you did not have mercy, but now you do. And that we walk out of here together today, because of this table, you can find that there is a message, a sanctuary for others then to start interacting with and find in life an animation for themselves. Let's pray. Father, once we were not a people, but now we are your people. It's like you showed up and said, hey, I want you on my baseball team. Hey, I want you a part of this thing. Yeah, 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 I know, I know you're maybe not like that talented in life. I'm not choosing you because you're talented in life. I'm choosing you because simply I just want you. And there's something about knowing that we're now chosen in you that we can go, wait a second, there's more for me to do in this world than simply do X profession or, or marry X person. 
have so many children. But actually now, we are a people, living stones built together, that proclaim the excellencies of you, Jesus, in a dark and dreary world. That we don't just tell people, show up on Sunday and it'll all be okay, because that's a lie. But when simply we say instead, let's just be together, because I can relate to you. I know what it's like not having it together. And I pray this morning we would find this weird participation. It's so weird, Jesus, but somehow we come together around this table and we participate with you and we participate with one another. And we find a deep sense of intimacy. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.